right, we're back here at Firefighter Kingdom. I'm Robert, your host, Robert Sanchez, with my co-host, uh, Vince Trujillo, producer, uh, the man of the plan, makes it all happen behind the scenes. And, and uh, so we have a, we have a great um, individual uh, uh, with us today. We actually have uh, Mr. Burl Shears. Um, he's, he's, uh, he runs an aviation company, and he actually does the, the slurry bombers there in the wildland, uh, for wildland uh, fire, uh, fires that you see, you know, on TV, the, the red slurry coming out of those, those airplanes. And I think it's just an interesting topic. A lot of people, you know, you know want to know what's going on with, uh, uh, with the aviation and the planes and those, those planes going over the, the wildland fires. And uh, I'm, I'm happy to have you on. How are you doing, Mr. Shears? I'm fine. Uh, thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be with you. Uh, no problem at all. So, so uh, your, your, your name of your company, sir, is the Western Pilot Service. Is that what it is? What? Yeah, that's correct. Western Pilot Service. Nice. So, yeah, I was, I was excited and interesting, man, to get this, get, get you on our podcast. And, uh, you know, again, thanks to you for being on. And I think, uh, you know, the, the listeners out there will, will be interested in, in hearing about, you know, aviation for, for wildland fires. You know, we always see the planes, you know, during wildland season. And, and uh, you know, I, I know I get a lot of questions even from my own kids. You know, what, what are those planes doing? What are the, what's coming out of them and how they work? So right. um, I think we'll, we'll be able to intrigue the listeners uh, this afternoon to see, you know, to let, uh, let them know what's going on with with aviation and in the wildland uh, uh fire service so i mean let's talk about you so you know i i know you're a marine and uh and i thank you for your service sir that's that's great thank you very much for that i uh and the marine corps was good to me uh so i was there early on in uh, 1964 to 1966 uh and when i left the marine corps uh I became a fireman in Southern California in the late 60s in the city of Fullerton. Oh, nice. Uh, so I was a structural firefighter at, at the very beginning of my career. Uh, like all good firefighters, I worked my days off in construction, and I got so busy that uh, after about three years, I made a decision to leave the fire department and continue that business. Uh, shortly after that, I moved back to Arizona use the GI Bill to learn to fly. And that's where I had the money or the GI Bill to pay for my commercial license, instrument rating, multi-engine ratings. All of the advanced ratings at that time could be paid for by the GI Bill. So oh, very nice. So that was my start in aviation. Oh, interesting, that's very nice. So, okay, so you didn't get, you, didn't, you weren't a pilot in the Marines. No, I wasn't. I was I was in a tank battalion the whole the whole time. So, in uh, Camp Pendleton and then Okinawa, then and then Vietnam, we made the first landing uh, with the first division into July uh, in 1966. Oh, okay. Well, we just had a, a the Marines' birthday just passed. It was a couple of weeks ago, and so happy birthday to the Marines. So thank you. I mean, you know, God knows we always need the Marines, man, and they're there when we need when they. When we need them, <laughs> so, so yeah, so, yeah, that's how I got the flying out of the Marine Corps was through the GI Bill, not the, uh, not any other way. Okay, so I mean, so you just used the GI Bill and you went to aviation school and became a pilot and you went from there. I did. And then, in the mid seventies, I uh, actually used the very last of my GI Bill to go to a an agricultural flying school, a crop dusting school. And so I started crop dusting in the mid-70s. Oh, okay. 
So doing that, moving along then until the late 80s, 88, 89, when the Department of Interior was looking into using agricultural type aircraft, which are now known as the single engine air tankers, to see if they would work for fighting desert fires in the Southwest. I happened to be at the right place at the right time. And so I was involved in those early experiments and the early uh, application of, of suppressants on fires in the desert, light grass, light fuels in the beginning uh, for the Bureau of Land Management. Oh, okay. So uh, is, and forgive me, sir, I'm not an expert in aviation, so I might not be using the wrong lingo or the wrong words, <laughs> but That's all right. so is, um, is uh, crop dusting plane uh, similar to a plane that you would use for fire suppression <clears throat> and wildland fires? Yes, it is. The, the airplanes that we're using now aren't the ones we started with, but the airplane we use now, and I say we being the entire single engine air tanker industry and uh, in the United States and pretty much worldwide, is the Air Tractor 802, which is the biggest air tractor made in only Texas, manufactured there, made in the US, and it's a purpose-built airplane, stressed to 40 Gs, used for agricultural aviation primarily, but they make a variant of that aircraft that is used for wildland fire. So it's a purpose-built airplane and it's certified. They're new aircraft. Uh, I think the oldest, oldest one I have is only about 10 or 11 years old. So they're purpose-built, they're made for firefighting, they're certificated by the FAA for firefighting. We have seat belts that have airbags in them. So hopefully uh, it could be a survivable crash. I know we had some this summer in single engine air tankers that were not survivable, but, um, but that happens. It, it, it's tragic, but it happens. Right. So it is a derivative of the agricultural air, airplane. Oh, very interesting. Okay, so there, there's similar planes. So your fleet, sir, is do you only uh, have single engine uh, airplanes in your fleet? That's right. Only the single engine air tankers. They're all air tractors. Uh, I have three others. We don't use them anymore. But the air tractors, they're Pratt and Whitney jet turbine turboprop airplanes, a jet engine that has a gear reduction and drives a propeller. So they're a modern airplane. Oh, okay. Gee, I was looking at, at some of the videos uh, from Western Pilot Service that you guys have there online, and uh, yes. I encourage uh, the listeners to go look at those videos. That's pretty impressive. I mean, you have to be an experienced pilot to, to run those planes. Yes. I mean, it's like... Yeah, well, all, all of our pilots are experienced pilots. What? This is not really a beginner's uh, industry. Right. So how many well, hours, just curious, like, would, would, be, would you require for a pilot to work for your company? It, we don't have a hard and fast. The, the government contract has minimum requirements, but it's very rare that any pilot is going to get hired with those minimum 1,500 hours total flight time, 25 hours in the right type of airplane. Uh, you have to have 200 hours of low-level typical terrain, mountainous terrain. So that's awfully hard to get with that little bit of experience. Right. Most of our guys are in the seven, eight, ten thousand hour flight range. 
Okay. Yeah. I mean, cause you know, even me myself being on a wildland fire and just, or, you know, just being in seeing actual, you know, I've had the great opportunity to actually see them live, you know, a few times and, um, they, they, they go pretty, they fly pretty low. I mean, they're almost <laughs> look like they're almost going to land and they, they come out right. of it and. Yeah, can... we do. We really do the close air support with these airplanes. We do closer in, uh, to the wildland firefighters, maybe a little closer to the structures. We, we do that close air support where the heavy air tankers uh, over the years have gotten much bigger to the, to the uh, VLATs and the, the very large air tankers. And then just the large air tankers are bigger. So they do the bigger drops, they make the bigger lines. We work in closer to the urban interface, the structures, uh, and sometimes closer around the crew. Okay, so they're smaller single engines so they can maneuver a little you bit closer can, you to... Can maneuver, yeah, you can get in tighter spots, and we our drop level minimum is 80 feet, and I think they're 200 feet on the large air tankers and maybe a little higher on the very large air tankers. So oh. it, a different tool for a different job. Right, I could see that. Just like you have a Pulaski and a bulldozer, you know, they both dig dirt, but a different way. Right, absolutely. That ma- that makes total sense. And so, I mean, how how many uh, airplanes do you have in your fleet there at Western Pilot Service? Just curious. We have eleven. Eleven. We have eleven airplanes, and each goes out with a truck and uh, retardant mixing capabilities, a fuel truck, uh, as a crew. So we send a driver and a pilot. Uh, a, mixing truck and a fuel fueling apparatus okay so is the the mixing the mix is it actually in like a tanker type truck and it pumps it into the the aircraft or the, yes it when, when it gets to the aircraft it is a liquid slurry and it's kind of it's more like syrup than it is pancake batter but it is thicker than water so that it drops. That's why it looks almost like a powder coming right. out of the airplane, but that's a liquid. Oh, okay. In, in the beginning, it can either be a liquid concentrate or it can be a powder that's mixed with water. Uh, it comes both ways. And so there's a little bit different types of slurry, but that retardant uh, is a liquid when it goes into any of the aircraft. Okay, so you have to pre-mix it uh, yourself before you put it yes. in the tankers to pump it into the aircraft? That's right. It's pre-mixed, it's tested, and then samples are taken so that they can go to the Missoula Fire Lab for quality control of the mixing. So we test it uh, with what's called a refractometer on every load, and that helps us know that it's mixed correctly and so that the weight going in the airplane is correct. Oh, okay. That's that's interesting. So, what's it made out of? Is it a? It it's primarily a fertilizer. It's primarily two fertilizers: uh, diammonium sulfate and ammonium phosphate. So, sulfate and phosphate, and I know people have heard fertilizers explode. That's ammonium nitrate. That's a different, totally a different fertilizer. Okay. These fertilizers. The phosphate puts out fires the best. It mixes with the, the cellulose and the flames and it puts off some water molecules and it cools the fire as it burns through the retardant. Sulfate doesn't work as well, but it's a lot cheaper. 
So the companies blend those together to get an economical mix that still works. The color, the thickening agents, all of that is to help the firefighter on the ground and the firefighters in the air to see where we've dropped it. Oh, okay. So it's a dye. For the color, yes. Oh, okay. So it's a dye just to assist on uh, where where it landed and to see it coming down. And the firefighter knows that if it's red or pink, it's retardant. It's going to work different if they're doing a burnout from that line. Uh, So, and then the pilots can see it. So one line can tie into the next line and you can uh, have a continuous line without gaps in it. Oh, okay. So uh, how heavy is, I mean, is did you guys measure in gallons or weight uh, that go, the, the fire retardant slurry that goes into the aircraft? We measure in both. So the weight is the primary factor, but gallons are what we're pumping of, of the liquid. We know that it weighs 9.2 pounds, provided it's mixed correctly. And we check that, uh, like I said, with a refractometer, every load. So if the mix is correct, we know it's 9.2 pounds per gallon, then we can haul in our airplanes 750 to 800 gallons, depending on our fuel load, to get to the maximum weight for the airplane for takeoff. And then we drop that in about two and a half to seven seconds to, to get that whole load out. We can control it in the airplane, heavier for heavier fuel, but shorter longer in the light grass. Uh, so it just depends on the mission, how, how long of a line that, oh, it's 7,000 to 73, 7,400 pounds of retardant come Dang. out of there in six, seven seconds. So that's a lot of weight, you know? So yeah, three and a half tons. Yeah. That's, so, I mean, firefighters on the ground, I mean, obviously there has to be good communication between the wildland firefighters and the pilots and the aircraft. Um, Correct. What, I mean, what, what's, uh, obviously, um, with the communications, but how dangerous is it for firefighters on the ground? I mean, if there wasn't good communication and actually fell on top of firefighters or civilians, um, or public, if you, if, as long as you're dropping from the correct height, that the idea is to give that retardant time to slow down as it comes out of the airplane. And if you look at the pictures you see on television, you'll see that it slows down stops moving forward, and then starts to fall like rain. So it's going to be a heavy rain at that point, and it's not going to have any impact on the firefighter, other than they don't want the red all over them and it's sticky. Right. Uh, And it coats the fuel evenly that way. If it's dropped too low, then it comes down hard, and it can be a danger to knocking them over, knocking them down maybe on a hillside or into a rock, uh, so the firefighters are taught to uh, drop down on all fours so they don't get knocked over. If by chance that would happen, uh, we all of our pilots know to abort. If we see any firefighters, we'll abort that drop. Uh, one of the last calls we get in the air is that the line is clear, that we've been told the firefighters have moved off of the line where we're going to drop. So we get a line clear call before we turn in for that live drop. Okay. So, I mean, that's, that's where, you know, obviously good communication comes in from, from the ground wildland firefighters to the, to the pilots. Right. So we're talking maybe to a, 
uh, uh, someone on the ground or, or we're talking to the oversight airplane, the air tactical group supervisor who's talking to the ground uh, and clearing the line and, and knowing what the target is. Oh, great. So, I mean, just, just out of curiosity, um, you're a private company, obviously you don't, you're, you don't work for, you work for the U S government on contract, but right. You don't, you're, you're a, That's right. and so is it just like a GSA? I mean, is it a contract that, you know, so it's just like a dozer would, would make a contract with the, with the forest service or is that how it works? Like, yes, to, yes, it is to a degree. Uh, we we're on a five year, we're in the coming up 21 will be the third year of a five year contract. So then we have to rebid after that. Okay. So we, we have extended year contracts. And then each year, there are task orders for locations that are put out to bid for anybody that holds the parent contract. So we have one overriding contract for the company and all of the vendors. Then we bid on locations and some locations are multiple years. So we were in Roswell, New Mexico and Silver City last year. Roswell is a multiple year uh, location and we'll be going back for the next two years, we believe. Silver City, I think, comes up for rebid in early 21. So it just depends where right. we go. Okay, so is it you, uh, is your company uh, generally work in the Southwest portion of the United States or is it just yeah. all over the country? All over the country, we can go. We've been in Texas. We've gone to Florida in years past. Uh, of course, the wildfire is usually in the Western United States. Usually we end up, even Silver City, for example, when when Silver City finally got rain, how very little rain you did get there. Right. Uh, we moved, those two airplanes moved north to Oregon for the second half of the fire season. So the federal government will move the resources wherever the fire need is. Oh, okay. So we go anywhere. Oh, so they'll put you at any airport that's capable of, of uh, supplying your, your aircraft. That's right. To support us that will support the mixing of the fire retardant where the government, the government is required to provide the concentrate. And so there are airports, airports that have that airports that don't. So, Okay. Pretty, so pretty well standard now. So like say you're based out you said you were in Roswell or Silver City and, and there's a fire in northern New Mexico or say Albuquerque. So how will the planes actually far fly that far and, and yes. make that a and they'll do a turnaround in that in that well, distance? Sometimes we'll do a turnaround back to uh, say Silver City, but more than likely Albuquerque has a larger tanker base. We will load there for the rest of that day. And maybe the next day, then when the fire conditions warrant or the fire is out, then we'll go back to Silver City. Oh, okay. We may go Silver City to Safford, stay in Safford two or three, four days with those airplanes, and then go back to our home base of Silver City. Oh, okay, okay. And just you know, just for the public out there, um, it, what what is like? Is it the F the FAA or what do they uh, uh, require as far as hours flying? Um, aircraft and wildland uh, situations? Well, we, we, we run seven days a week uh, on all of our pilots and our aircraft, but we're mandated to take two days off every 12 days. So we provide relief pilots two days out of every 14. We have to have relief pilots. Air pilot gets two days off. 
They're allowed to fly no more than eight hours a day, and they cannot work any more than 14 hours a day, be on duty at the air base. Uh, but they pack their bag every day, the bag's in the airplane. It's not an easy life when you move around with these fires. So eight hours a day, and you can work 12 out of 14 days. Right. And you get two days off. Yeah, I could see that, man. It could be, it could be stressful, right? So is there ever yeah. a time where it doesn't become fun anymore? <laughs> it, you know, like anything, it's a job. It, uh, right. it's, it, it looks more exciting than it is. Maybe you, you become accustomed to it. Right. And our job is to mitigate that risk, to do it safely, to do it day after day, to do it year after year, and, uh, and mitigate the risk, even though it's close to the ground in mountainous terrain and windy afternoons. So... Right. And so is it, is it a basically a sun up to sundown? Is, it, is that when you're allowed to fly? Obviously not in the dark because yeah. of, because yeah. of danger. We don't race. fly, we don't fly in the dark and, and we by contract agree to be on the ground by 30 minutes after official sundown. Okay. So very just about it's dark. We're on the ground. Right. I mean, and, and now the wildland seasons have become so long. I mean, they're, I mean, you could even have wildland fires into the winter. I mean, it happens. So, I mean, you're pretty much working all year round with maybe, what, a month or two off, if that? We are. And right now, we're really busy in doing all of our maintenance. All of our airplanes are back in Buckeye, Arizona. We're doing our maintenance. Uh, but we coordinate with the Southwest uh, Dispatch Center in Albuquerque, which is our, our dispatch center. And we keep two airplanes ready to go year-round. So we have two that are ready to go today or tomorrow. If there's some kind of a fire, uh, we can have a, within an hour or two, we can send that airplane and those trucks off. Oh, okay. Well, that's good to know. Yeah. So we always keep some available. Right. Right. So, uh, you know, Mr. Shears, uh, you know, I have a, you know, I have a co-host of Vince Trujillo and, uh, you know, he's, a, he's also our producer and he, he's, he's a, a member of the public, you know, like, and, you know, you and I could talk, you know, sometimes certain, you know, words or lingo that, you know, the public, the general public doesn't know. And so he's always good at coming up with some questions that, you know, I okay. think members of the public want to know. So how you doing, Vince? Hey, great. Hi, Vince. Hey, how's it going? I don't good. think we've actually met on camera yet. Yes. How are you? Yeah, good, good, good to meet you. So, yeah, it's such an interesting story to hear about all of this. Uh, love to hear the background, where you came from as well, and how you got to where you're at now. I had a couple questions because I'm also, you know, for some of the firefighters, they're entrepreneurs. Some of them have side hustles, which really, you know, the fire service really lends itself to that based on the hours. I'm sure some of your pilots and others um you talking about being in construction as well before <laughs> when you were in the fire service and you started this business. So a couple of, a couple of uh, business questions. Uh, what, what's one of the biggest lessons you learned pivoting over into starting this business early on when you were first getting it going? So first of all, you're in the right place at the right time. But then as you were growing your business, what's one of the biggest lessons that you can remember learning that helped you get to the next level? I think it's consistency in, in your product. Uh, to stand by your word on what you tell people you can do. Don't tell them that you can do more than you can do. And you, you have to take some risk. You have to take calculated risks, but everything in business really is looking forward. 
and looking forward in the fire season doesn't necessarily tell you a lot. You know, we can, I can tell you about last summer, but I can't tell you much about next summer. So you, you have to be careful in your risk, careful in your, your monetary risk, uh, you know, and where I was buying additional aircraft and ordering aircraft. And, and those are always very hard decisions, but, uh, you kind of make them and stick to them and, and try to be very consistent. I've tried to be consistent and I've tried to stay with the business that I know. Oh, great, great points of advice there. Actually, I think, I think you're our first uh, private, co- private uh, a company owner on our podcast. So, yeah, it's, it's, so. It's, 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 it's really good hearing from that. Though. So that, that's great to hear that. So uh, when's the last time you actually flew? I, I quit flying the air tankers, um, that's kind of a two-edged question. I actually flew yesterday, ah. but uh, but not the air tankers. Okay. So I quit flying air tankers when I turned 70. Uh, I figured that was enough. Uh, I had cut back considerably, probably for the five or six years before that. I didn't fly contracts, but I did relief. Uh, and in the last few years, I really was the extra pilot. If somebody got sick or somebody needed to go to a graduation ceremony or all of the things we can't go to now, weddings and all of that, then I would fill in as the extra pilot. So it, but that's great. So so you actually, actually so you're saying that you're 74. I am 74. Wow. Well, you look great. So I guess the, the, the air, air, air firefighting and flying tankers has kept you young. Yeah, it kept me, I guess. Thank but, you. And you still fly. That's great. You know, my, my girlfriend's uh, a father actually was a, was a pilot for quite a while, just, you know, a private pilot. And uh, he hasn't flown for quite some time, and he's about your same age. So I'm going to be able to tell him, you know, there's, there's people still flying sure. mid-70s, man. Sure. Keep going. As long as you can get your medical, you know, keep yeah, passing. Yeah, that's right. And- I, I'm sorry. I did realize he is 80 now, so that's that is a little, oh, little difference. Yeah, I don't think I'll be there. So yeah, there you go. Uh, well, that that's that's great. I, lo- I love to hear that. Uh, any any stories just in fire service when you're still flying tankers or anything? What any what, anything that uh, I'm not sure you have several, but do you have any major close calls or something that really stands out as one of the top uh, things that was interesting to see or know, experience? I, I think the things that that stand out and and part of it is just opportunistic is when you are in the right place at the right time uh, you know our, our airplanes are a little bit like having a a single shot gun you know i mean you're either loaded and ready or you're not and so if you get to a fire when somebody is close to being burned over or there's a structure uh, with the fire burning up through their backyard, and you can make that drop uh, and stop the fire before it gets to somebody's house, it's quite reward- rewarding. It's always, uh, obviously, life or an engine crew that's that may be uh, endangered, and you can put a drop in front of their engines. Th- that's quite rewarding, and, and it's absolutely necessary so that's happened to all of the pilots in this industry one time or another when you happen to be the airplane that gets there exactly when it's needed for somebody's house uh somebody's vehicle uh and there's other times you just can't get there fast enough right so that's incredibly rewarding go ahead Uh, sorry go ahead and finish your thought no i was just saying those those are the stories you remember those are the drops uh, that 
where you you can see instant results in the back of someone's house. And that's just front. that's just incredibly rewarding to have that happen. Yes. And and then I'm sure there's the heartbreak on the other side when you weren't able to make the drop or you weren't able to to do the thing or get there in time. Or, or you have just dropped somewhere else that's not really as as uh, critical and you're on your way back and now there is a critical need. So yeah, it can go either way. You can't get there in time maybe, or you've already dropped somewhere else and now there's somebody saying, oh, wait, we need it over here. Uh, this business is kind of instant reward. You, mm-hmm. you make your drop, you can see where it hit on the ground. You can see that red streak and it's either where you wanted to put it or you missed. You can't lie to yourself about it. You know, it, it's uh, pretty quickly telling whether you did a good job or you didn't by getting it where the air attack or the, the uh, firefighter on the ground wanted it. And overall, you're happy with the, the, the effects that you, you've been able to have and feel like uh, it's made up for the, 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 some yeah, of the losses? Absolutely. absolutely. Uh, you know, it's, it's a very rewarding industry. Any firefighting in part of it is very rewarding. And, and so, yeah, we feel that we're, we're an integral part of the whole wildland firefighting, a lot of urban interface. We do a lot of work around homes and structures and schools, and that kind of in close, a lot of fires that aren't very big where we only work on them two hours maybe, and it's over. So those don't always make the news or rarely make the news, but... You know, that's so interesting to me. I actually, you know, talking to Robert and hearing all of the people he has on in interviews, um, I actually don't, I don't know that I've ever seen or heard of a, a plane dropping in an urban setting that I've been aware of or seen with my, you know, around, but it happens, right? You guys do it, it every, every year at least? Every year. Oh, all the time. We, our airplanes are based here in Arizona on the west side of Phoenix and we drop all around the perimeter of Phoenix. Uh, this year, of course, Arizona was was the epicenter of, right. of the fire season early. Uh, a lot of drops inside the city limits, uh, just all over. We've dro- I've dropped in Scottsdale. I've dropped all all over the. And as the urban interface, if you think about it, as a city grows, its circumference just gets huge, and so there's more urban interface year after year than there were in the prior years. So we actually have more area where we work year after year around these cities that, that grow out into the wildland. Oh, wow. That's great to hear. That's great to hear. So I'm glad that you guys are out there. You can drop on us here in the city if we need to, or if we're out there in the, in the forest and we get stuck, you're supporting our firefighters. Thanks for everything that you do and congratulations on your business. It's such a Thank great story much. to hear how you started and how you ended up here. And now you're still flying and enjoying yourself and, uh, and, uh, helping save lives out there with our first responders. So thank you for that. Thank you very much for having me. It's, it's been a pleasure to be here. Yeah. I'm going to turn it over to Robert to close out. All right. Thank you, Vince. Appreciate it. Vince always comes up with some good questions. I think uh, members of the public like to hear. And, uh, you know, I just I just real quick, um, you're talking about dropping um, in, in the near or, or close to the cities. I mean, obviously, it doesn't harm a structure. Like if you were to drop on, on top of a, of a home or some kind <coughs> of commercial structure, it, does, it can't damage it if you're finding the correct height, right? Or, we try not to drop on the homes or, or those kinds of things. It, it's going to stain uh, obviously, if it's that critical, I think most homeowners would rather have some retardant on them than not. But we try to drop in that 
area of fuel. Uh, and, and maybe I'd like to say one other thing about that. Those homes that have a defensible space are obvious from the air. Those are the homes that the air attack, air, air tactical group supervisor will pick out to try to save right. because with the defensible space and the application of some retardant, that fire will either stop there or it will go around their home. And so that defensible space does more than defend you from the fire. It allows the firefighters to defend you from the fire. Absolutely. It's very right. important to have. Right. I mean, and so, you know, those homeowners or, you know, a business or industry that don't have a defensible space, you know, we try to educate the public. It actually causes, you know, harm to, you know, firefighters and, you know, it, it puts, you know, puts everybody at risk. It puts them at risk and it puts the firefighters at risk trying to, you know, save their, you know, them from their house or the structure um, or even from, you know, being consumed in flames. Um, so that, that is a good point, you know, so, you know, we, I mean, I, Obviously, the 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 officer on the ground that's actually communicating with with the airplanes, they're they're picking out the structures that are that they have a chance to make it. They're not going to pick out a structure that has several trees by them. And that's right. They're not going to put the the retardant when they only have one or two airplanes maybe on this fire on a house that they don't think they can save anyway. Right. But the one they do think they can save is going to get the retardant line between them and the fire. So Absolutely. it's very important. So it's, it's, it's by GPS coordinates, right? The communication from the ground to, to the, to the plane, is that how it works or is it kind of it's landmarks? More landmarks. It's landmarks. Okay. It's, it's roads or hills or see where my fire truck is with the lights on or those kinds of directions. Okay. Uh, usually there's an oversight airplane circling over the top of the fire. Uh, we're getting directions from them. So they're picking out geographical points. Uh, if it's a bigger fire, it'll have a lead plane on it also. And that airplane has already tested the air down low and they will lead us in where they want us to drop. So it's, it's a very, it's a group effort. Uh, sometimes there'll be the air attack airplane over the top and the lead plane and then the tankers. Oh, okay. So you'll, so with the, the actual air tanker, will they circle the target area first and then come back and do it? We, we will, especially if we're there before the lead plane is, then we'll talk to the, the air attack over the fire, make sure we have the right uh, directions. Sometimes we'll make a dry run. So let's say we're going to start right here and he'll say, yes, that's where I want it. Then we'll come back around and make a live run. Very nice. So, well, that's very interesting, Mr. Shears, and I appreciate you uh, being on the show with uh, Vince and I. And and uh, you're very I, welcome. It was an interesting. I think uh, the 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 listeners out there would be intrigued to listen and and uh, probably answer a lot of questions that they have. You know. Well, I hope so. I'm, I I appreciate being here and appreciate the invitation. Right. So uh, we'll be we'll be turning. I'm going to turn it over to Vince to tell you uh, the listeners out there where to where to listen. Yeah, absolutely. This is going to be published uh, on uh, listen to us on Apple Podcasts. You can subscribe through iTunes. You can also go to Spotify. We're on Spotify um, uh, under Firefighter Kingdom. You can also Google Play. So search for Firefighter Kingdom podcast, and you'll find us in Google Play as well. Visit our website firefighterkingdom.com. Also on our website coming up this holiday.
holidays, you're going to be able to buy some Firefighter Kingdom gear and swag, hats, cups, um, mugs, and uh, t-shirts, as well as our Firefighter Kingdom coffee blend. It's going to be coming out this winter barrel. Uh, we're going to see it by sending you uh, a bag of Firefighter Kingdom coffee. Uh, it's right. our first launch of it this year, so we're excited about that. 10% of proceeds are going to be going to our, our Firefighter Foundation here in New Mexico, and uh, we're excited about that as well. So follow us on uh, our podcast uh, on the I- Apple as well as Spotify. Visit our website and follow us on Firefighter Kingdom Facebook page. We're going to be streaming this live here in a couple of weeks, and we'll let you know when it's out, Beryl, and you can uh, uh, notify uh, whoever it is that you can to share it. And uh, thank you again for being on the podcast. Thank you very much. And on behalf of all of our pilots that are out there every day and our drivers who are there loading the airplanes and fueling the airplanes and keeping them in the air, uh, we appreciate it. And I will uh, share the information with them. Right. Well, thank uh, your your crew and staff for their service, as well as you, sir. And uh, tell your daughter and uh, your uh, brother, your uh, son-in-law, Steve Gilman, a good friend of mine, tell him I said hi. Good. I will tell him you said hello. Have a good day, sir. All right. Signing off from Firefighter Kingdom, I'm your host, Robert Sanchez, with your co-host, Vince Trujillo. Until next time, we'll see you later.